Section 1 of The Primrose Path. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Militia. The Primrose Path by Bram Stoker. Chapter 1 A Happy Home. I wonder will any of them come, Jerry? The pretty little woman's face got puckered all over with baby wrinkles, more suitable to the wee pink face that lay on her bosom than to her own somewhat pale one, as she made the remark. Jerry looked up from his newspaper and gazed at her lovingly for a moment before he answered, his answer being a confident smile with a knowing shake of the head from side to side, as who should say, Oh, you little humbug, pretending to distress yourself with doubts. Of course they'll come, all of them. Katie seemed to lose her trouble in his smile. It is wonderful what comforters love and sympathy are. She drew close to her husband and held down the tiny bald pink head for him to kiss, and then, leaning her cheek against his, said in a soft cooing voice, half wifely, half motherly, Oh, Jerry, isn't he a little beauty? Children are quite as jealous as dogs and cats in their own way, and instinctively the urchin, sprawling on the hearth rug, came over, and pulled at his mother's dress, saying plaintively, Me too, mammy, me too. Jerry took the child on his knee. Hey, little Jerry, your nose is out of joint again, isn't it? A mother is jealous as well as her child, and this mother answered, Oh, no, Jerry, sure I don't love him less because I have to take care of a little mite. Further conversation was stopped by a knock at the door. That's some of them staying away, said Jerry, as he went out to open the door. As may be seen, Jerry and his wife expected company. The doubts as to whose arrival was caused by the extreme inclemency of the weather, and as the occasion of the festivities was an important one, the doubts were strong. Jerry O'Sullivan was a prosperous man in his line of life. His trade was that of a carpenter, and as he had, in addition to large practical skill and experience gained from unremitting toil, a considerable share of natural ability, was justly considered by his compeers to be the makings of a successful man. Three years before, he had been married to his pretty little wife, whose sweet nature and care for his comfort, and whose desire to perfect the cheerfulness of home, had not a little aided his success, and kept him on the straight path. If every wife understood the merits which a cheerful home has above all other places in the eyes of an ordinary man, there would be less brutality than there is amongst husbands, and less hardships and suffering amongst wives. The third child had just been christened, and some friends and relatives were expected to do honour to the occasion, and now the knock announced the first arrival. Whilst Jerry went to the door, Katie arranged the child's garments so as to make him look as nice as possible, and also fixed her own dress somewhat disturbed by maternal cares. In the meantime, little Jerry flattened his nose against the window-pane, in a vain desire to see the appearance of the first arrival. Little Katie stood by him, looking expectant, as though her eyes were with her brother's. Mrs. Jerry's best smile showed that the newcomer, Mr. Parnell, was a special friend. After shaking hands with him, she stood close to him, and showed him the baby, looking up into his dark, strong face, with a smile of perfect trust. He was so tall that he had to stoop to kiss the baby, although the little mother raised it in her arms for him. He said very tenderly, 
Let me hold him in a minute in my arms. He lifted him gently as he spoke, and bending his head, said reverently, God bless him. Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Katie's eyes were full of tears as she took him back, and she thanked the big man with a look too full of sacred feeling for even a smile. Jerry stood by in silence. He felt much, although he did not know what to say. Another knock was heard, and again Jerry's services were required. This time there was a large influx, for three different bodies had joined just at the door. Much laughter was heard in the hall, and then they all entered. The body consisted of seven souls, all told. Place aux dames. We Irishmen must give first place always to the ladies. Of these there were four, Jerry's mother and her assistant, Miss McCannisby, and Katie's two sisters, one older and one younger than herself. The men were Mr. Muldoon, Tom Price, and Patrick Casey. Jerry's mother was a quiet, dignified old lady, very gentle in manner, but with a sternness of thought and purpose which shone through her gentleness and forbid any attempt at imposition, as surely as the green light marks danger at a railway crossing. She had a small haberdashery shop, by which she was reputed amongst her friends to have realised a considerable amount of money. Miss McCannisby was her assistant, and was asked by Katie to be present out of pure kindness. She had originally set her cap at Jerry, and had very nearly succeeded in her aim. It was no small evidence of Katie's genuine goodness of nature, and her perfect trust of her husband, that she was present, for most women have a feeling of possible hostility, or at least maintain an armed neutrality towards the former flames of the man that they love. Miss McCannisby was tall and buxom, and of lively manners, quite devoid of bashfulness. It puzzled many of her friends how, with her desire to be married, she had not long ago succeeded in accomplishing her wish. Katie's sisters were pleasant, quiet girls, both engaged to be married, Jane to Price, and Mary to Casey, the former man being a blacksmith, and the latter an umbrella-maker, both being sturdy young fellows, and looking forward to being shortly able to marry. Mr. Muldoon was the great man of the occasion. He was a cousin of Mrs. O'Sullivan's, and was rich. He had a large Italian warehouse, which he managed well, and consequently was exceedingly prosperous. Personally, he was not so agreeable as he might have been. He was small and stout, and ugly, with keen eyes, a sharply pointed nose, was habitually clean-shaven, and kept his breast stuck out like that of a pouter-pigeon. He always dressed gorgeously, and on the present occasion, as he considered that he was honouring his poor relations, had got himself up to a pitch of such radiance that his old servant had commented on his appearance as he had left home. His trousers were of the lightest yellow whipcord, his coat was blue, his waistcoat was red velvet with blue glass buttons, and in the matter of green tie, high collar, and large cuffs he excelled. His watch-chain of massive gold with the pint of seals attached to the fob-chain after the manner of the bucks of the last generation, was alone worthy of respect. His temper was not pleasant, for he was dictatorial to the last degree, and had a very unpleasant habit, something like Frederick the Great, of considering any difference of opinion as an insult intentionally offered to himself. A man like this may be a pleasant enough companion so long as he goes with the tide, 
he thinking that it is the tide which goes with him. But when occasion of difference arises, the social horizon at once becomes overcast with angry clouds which gather quickly till the storm has burst. Oftentimes, as in nature, the great world of elements, the storm clears the air. Mr Muldoon had been asked, as an act possibly likely to benefit the new olive branch, for the Italian grocer was unmarried, and might at some future time, so thought Jerry and Katie in their secret hearts, take in charge the destinies of the new infant, today made John Muldoon O'Sullivan. When the party entered the room, Mr Muldoon had advanced to Mrs Jerry, and as she was a pretty little woman, had kissed her in a semi-paternal way, which made Miss McCannisby giggle. Mr Muldoon looked round half indignantly, for he felt that his dignity was wounded. He considered that Miss McCannisby, of whose very name he was ignorant, was a forward young person, and, in his mind, determined to let her understand so before the evening was over. After a few minutes the introductions had all been accomplished, and everybody knew everybody else. There was a great kissing of the baby, great petting of the two elder children, for whose delectation sundry sweets were produced from mysterious pockets, and much laughter and good-humoured jesting. Mr Muldoon prided himself upon being a good hand at saying smart things, and felt that the present occasion was not one to be thrown away. Being a bachelor, he considered that his most proper attitude was that of ignorance, utter ignorance regarding babies in general, and this one in particular. When he was shown the baby, he put up his eyeglass and said, "'What is this?' "'Oh, Mr Muldoon,' said the mother, almost reproachfully. "'Sure, don't you know this is the new baby?' "'Oh, oh, indeed, it is very bold.' "'It won't be long so, then.' interrupted Miss McCannisby pertly. You can make it your hair, if you will. Her English method of aspiration pointed the joke. Mr Muldoon looked at her almost savagely, but said nothing. He did not want to commit himself to any intention of aiding the child's career, and he was obliged to remain silent. He mentally scored another black mark against the speaker. Presently he spoke again. Is it a boy or a girl? A boy. And are these boys or girls? He pointed as he spoke to little Jerry and little Katie. Miss McCannisby answered again. Neither, they are half of each. Dear me, said Mr Muldoon. Can that be? Don't you see? said Miss McCannisby, in a tone which implied the addition of the words, you silly old fool. One is a boy, and the other a girl. Mr Muldoon made another black mark in his mental notebook and, ignoring his opponent, as he already considered Miss McCannisby, spoke again to Katie. "'And are these all yours? Three children, and you're being married. Let me see, how long?' Three years and two months.' "'Why, at this rate, what will you do in twenty years? Just fancy, twenty children. Really, Miss Katie, you should take the pledge.' Katie did not know what to answer, and so stayed silent. Miss McCannisby turned away to hide an imagined blush, and Mr Muldoon, feeling that he had said something striking, began to unbend and mix with the rest of the company, in a better humour than he had been in for some time. The table was ready set with all the materials for comfort, and as the teapot was basking inside the fender beside a dish of highly buttered cake, the work of Mrs Jerry herself, 
and the kettle singing songs of a bacchanalian character on the fire, promise of comfort to the foes and friends of Father Matthew were not wanting. There was great arranging of places at the table. Jane and Mary, with their sweethearts, managed to monopolise one entire side, sitting alternately like the bread and ham in the pile of sandwiches before them. Mr Muldoon was put next to Katie, and Jerry had his mother on his right hand, she being supported on the other side by Mr Parnell. This left Miss McCannisby to take her seat without choice between the two eldest men of the party. She did not shrink from the undertaking, however, but sat down, saying pertly to the company, but to no one in particular, "'My usual luck. Never mind. I like to have an old man on each side of me.' Mr Muldoon liked to be thought young. Most middle-aged bachelors do, and he looked his disapprobation of the remark so strongly that a silence fell on all. The dowager, Mrs. O'Sullivan, said quietly, "'You let your tongue run too fast, Margaret. You forget Mr. Muldoon is a new friend of yours, and not an old one.' Miss McCannisby had already seen that she had made a mistake, and was only waiting for an opportunity of correcting it, so she seized it greedily. "'I am so awfully sorry. I hope, sir, I did not offend. Indeed, I wished to please. I thought that young people wished to be thought old. I know that I did when I was young.' "'That was some time ago,' whispered Pat Casey to Mary, who laughed too suddenly and was nearly caught at it. Mr. Muldoon was mollified. He thought to himself that perhaps the poor girl did not mean to give offence, that she was a clever girl, much nicer after all than most girls, however, that he would have an eye on her and see what she was like. For some time the consumption of the good things occupied the attention of everybody, Mrs. Jerry handed a cup of tea to Mr. Parnell before any of the rest of the men, saying, "'I know you like that better than anything else.' "'That I do,' he answered heartily. "'There is as much virtue in this as there is evil in beer and whisky and gin and all other abominations.' No one felt inclined to take up, at present at all events, the total abstinence glove thus thrown down, and so the subject dropped. It would have done one good to have seen the care which Katie's sisters took of their sweethearts, piling up their plates with everything that was nice, and keeping them as steadily at work as if they had been engaged in a contest as to who should consume the largest quantity in the smallest time. This was a species of friendly rivalry in which the men found equal pleasure with the girls. It is quite wonderful the difference between the appetites of successful and unsuccessful lovers. Mr. Muldoon and Miss McCannisby, during the progress of this meal, became fast friends, at least so it would seem, for they bandied, unchecked, pleasantries of a nature usually only allowed amongst intimate friends. Both Jerry and his wife were much amazed, for both stood somewhat in awe of the great man with whom they would never have attempted to make any familiarity. By the time the heavy part of the eating was done, the whole assemblage was in hearty good humour. Katie began to clear away the things, having given the baby in charge to her mother-in-law. The moment she began, however, Mary and Jane started up, and insisted that they should do the work, and on her showing signs of determination, forced her into the armchair, and placed the two sweethearts on guard over her, threatening them with various pains and penalties in event of their failing in their trust. Seeing the other girls at work, Miss McCannisby insisted on helping also and they were too kind-hearted not to make her welcome in the little kindly office. 
The next addition to the working staff was Mr. Muldoon, who, to the astonishment of everyone who knew him, clamoured loudly for work, evidently bent on going wherever Miss McCannisby went, and on helping her in her every task. It was a sight to see the great man work. He evidently felt that he was extending and being more friendly with his inferiors than, perhaps in justice to his own position he was warranted in doing, and he took some pains to let everyone see that he was playing at work. His ignorance of the simplest domestic offices was preternatural. He did not know how to carry even a plate without putting it somewhere he ought not, or spilling its contents over someone, and he managed to break a tumbler and two plates, just to show, like Beaumarchais and the watch, that that sort of thing was not in his line. Mrs. Jerry did not know Pope's lines about the perfection of a woman's manner and temper, wherein he puts, as the culmination of her virtues, and mistress of herself, though china fall. But she had the good temper and the good manner of nature, which is above all art, and, although womanlike, the wreck of her household gods went to her heart, she said nothing, but looked as sweet as if the breakage pleased her. Truly Jerry O'Sullivan had a sweet wife and a happy home. Prosperity seemed to be his lot in life. End of chapter 1